Welcome. You are listening to a sermon presented at the First Church of Christ in Elkins, West Virginia. This message is given by pastor and teacher Jason Brandon. Jason will be selecting passages from the Word of God and showing us how to apply God's Word in our lives today. He will also be showing us why we need Jesus. How can faith, God, and the Bible have more influence in your daily life? What is God saying to us today? For this and more, stay tuned. We're in First Peter. Wow, way too loud, Mike. Wait, bring that down. Ooh, goodness, goodness, goodness. Okay, turn with me. Is that is that okay? Are we still a little loud and echoey? Are we okay? We're okay. All right. Turn with me to First Peter chapter four. I was taught. My father taught me when I was younger. If you wait to decide your morality, your ethics, your priorities until you need them, you've waited too long. And I've always remembered that. Uh, And I believe that our faith is something the same. Uh, There must be a deliberation in how we live. Our life shows our faith in God. Here's what I mean. Military, this is a little bit in the news lately. Um, I, I, I gather that that I gather that Russia is not doing as well as they would like to, and that they have conscripted people and are sending them straight to the front line with Ukraine without training, with understandable results. Our military spends a lot of time changing people's instincts, training soldiers so that their native instinct, their natural instinct, is no longer what it was, uh, because Under fire, all you have left are your instincts. And it takes effort to make your instincts different. That takes training. Instincts are great when we've trained our instincts, when when our instinctive nature works for us and not against us. If we don't train our instincts, we end up a lot of times with rather lousy results. And I want to say that it's the same with our faith. We have to train ourselves to act in righteousness. Uh, Don't don't kid yourself. Righteousness doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come easily. In the moment, we will always act on instinct, not not a careful decision. Self-discipline takes time, takes training, We have to be deliberate in how we live. Our faith cannot be what we decide in the moment accidentally. Um, We we can't be reactionary. We will always be reactionary. We want to train those reactions. We can't rely on our reactions on their own. If we wait until until the decision's in our face to make a decision, we've waited too long. Those decisions need to be, all of our decisions in life have to be made before we get to the point where it's, it's a crisis, where before we run out of time to think, um, we, al- we always react instinctively, and so we want to train those instincts. Taking up our cross requires a commitment and a decision to be made before we're put in a, in a position where we desperately suddenly need it. Uh, in the moment when we act on instinct, we have, what, what have we trained for? What have we disciplined ourselves so that we may react the way that we want to? 
have we disciplined ourselves and, and, and made the decisions that gear us towards righteousness? So we're in 1 Peter chapter 4. A tough chapter. A tough chapter, a mature chapter. If you're new to the Christian faith, if you're not a Christian, if you're new to the Christian faith, we're going to read some things that maybe say, well, I don't know that I want to get into that that much. Um, this is a mature chapter. We'll get through it. Bear, bear with me. Um, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. And as a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. Now, I want to jump ahead to verse 12. We'll come back and pick up 7 through 11. But Peter kind of digresses. It's not digresses. He goes into specifics and then comes back to the main. So verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us... What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And so then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. We have to be deliberate in our righteousness. It is a truism, very true statement, that misery loves company. And, and we see this in regards to our faith, that people, our, our world is anxious to get Christians to justify their sin. Uh, people say live and let live, but, but we know, we who are made in the image of God, that we were made for better. And they don't like it. The world doesn't like it when we don't say to them, your sin's okay, it doesn't matter. They hate it when we call out sin. Sin is lonely. Jesus says in John chapter 3, light has come into the world and men, because they love darkness, they don't want to come into the light. Because if they come into the light, people will see their sin for what it is. And so it is as if, it is as if men are locked in a prison cell and someone comes to the door and opens the door to free them from the cell, 
and they say, don't look at me. I, 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 I'm ugly, I'm, I, I'm, I'm dirty. I'd rather stay in here where I can stay ugly and dirty and not be seen, which is crazy because sin is that cell that's trapping us. And God has freed us, wiped our record, and offered to adopt us and make him, and, and, and you know, the king has opened the prison cell. And God has not just freed us, but then expunged our record and then said, and by the way, you can be a prince or a princess of the kingdom. And people say, I'd rather stay in the cell. Don't look at me. And so the world, in fact, wants us to justify their sin. And that's why, I, it's one reason I think that the church is so desperately under attack in, in the 21st century is because it's not just, well, we'll do our thing, you do your thing. No, 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 you need to, you need, you need to endorse our thing, the world says, because they can't stand the condemnation of the light shown on them. So let's make one thing clear. Suffering, we read about suffering, suffering and sin are, are a stupid combination. Can you, uh, suffering for being a Christian and then turning to sin, well, then what was the point that we suffered for? What's the point of suffering if we then give in to sin? Christ suffered so that we don't have to fall to sin. The whole point of suffering is that when we suffer for being a Christian, and we always want to make sure in this, in this message in particular, that's what we're talking about, we suffer because it refines us, it, it helps get rid of the sin in our lives. We, we, we put away sin and we take on righteousness, and suffering serves a purpose in helping us get rid of sin and put on righteousness. That is what Peter's point is. Um, I, think, I think people are afraid of righteousness. They don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be, righteousness is for preachers or, 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 or saints or, or whatever. We don't, we, don't, we, don't want to be, we don't want to be righteous. I don't want to live that holy of a life. I, 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 don't, I just want to have a fun life and a nice life and then go to heaven when it's done. And we fear righteousness, but we're all called to be saints. The word saint is just the word for Christian in the Bible. Um, ministry, we're all called to be ministers, not just the preacher. We're all called to be righteous. We're all called to be holy and set apart to God. It doesn't mean perfect. It just means that we belong to Him. So it's, not, it's easy to think that righteousness doesn't apply to us. And so we fear righteousness just as much as we fear suffering. And, and we talked about this this morning uh, in my Sunday school class. To an extent, I get the concept of fearing suffering. Nobody wants to go through pain. We're not gluttons for punishment. But when we talked about, we were talking about uh, this morning in Sunday school, James and John asking Jesus, can we sit on your right and your left? And Jesus' response to that, he says, can you guys go through what I'm going to go through? And they said, oh, yeah, absolutely. And he said, well, <laughs> you will <laughs> then. And James was the first of the apostles to die. And John was the last. And it, of the apostles, they were the Alpha and the Omega. Um, and, and in fact, what we understand is that 11 of the 12 apostles were martyred and, and died for the gospel. And John died in a prison mine uh, from potentially of old age, we, we tradition tells us, and, and the writings of the early church fathers. It wasn't that he had a nice, happy retirement. Uh, 
And, and, and we look to their sacrifice, and this is where this becomes a tough teaching. We look to their martyrdom. And the Greek word martyr, it's a Greek word. It means witness. By their deaths, they witnessed to others the power of the gospel. I'm not saying that we should look forward to, to suffering. Uh, but the Bible says that there is a place for suffering in the life of a Christian. And I think that we, and we do need to focus on that. I, it's easy, living in West Virginia <laughs> is a very peaceful place compared to much of the rest of the world. Not even just, the re, you know, you look at Ukraine and you look at these places in the world or, or Africa where, there, where there's suffering and starvation. And, and we can look at these places with conflict, but even in the U.S., you turn on the news and you see riots and cities burning down. And, and every time I see that, I think, I'm very glad that I live in Elkins, West Virginia, that that's not something that, that I have to suffer through. And yet, when I read the New Testament, I read that Christians will suffer. Not, not an if, but a will. Maybe, maybe not thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. But I agree with Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he says that if your life isn't harder for being a Christian, you're doing it wrong. That being a Christian will, by its nature, drive off some people that will be friends otherwise. In, in jobs, you know, we need you to work on Sunday morning. No, I'm going to go to church. Well, then you don't get the promotion. Your life will be more, your, your finances alone, if nothing else. You're giving money to the church that, and to God that you would otherwise get to spend on yourself. Your life will be more difficult if you are a Christian. We think that the suffering is for the martyrs and righteousness for the ministers. And, and we've known too many people that say one ministers, maybe, that say one thing and, and, and do something else. It's very easy to think that the rules don't apply to me. And when I say rules, I mean the things that God wants us to do. So maybe rules isn't the right word. I think I prefer grace. But it's easy to look at grace and look at it like rules, the, the, the very things that God saves us from. You know, it's easy for the preacher to say, this is how Christians, the church is supposed to act. It's very easy for the church to say, well, that's how the elders are supposed to act. But we're all called to be righteous. You can't say that's somebody else's job. Suffering isn't something that happens when you do something wrong. We treat it like that. There's this... this concept of karma, which is this Hindu belief that if you do X, Y happens, and, and if you're suffering, you must be doing something wrong, I would challenge you that the Christian faith is the opposite. That if you're a Christian, you will suffer. One of my, back when I was a teaching Greek at, at a college in southern Illinois, uh, one of my students really started to dig into the word discipline was doing a, a, a study on, on the, the concept of discipline, the word, the meaning, its semantic domain, and, and discovered that discipline and training and, and frankly, you know, when, 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 when Paul says that he trains himself, uses the phrase he beats himself, disciplines his own body, God says in Revelation, those I love, I discipline. And discipline can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending upon how you choose to focus it. When I am disciplined, 
I get my sermons written on time. I get my bills paid on time. I'm not very disciplined in that regard. Uh, When I'm disciplined, my life is kind of in order. But in school, I got disciplined for not getting my homework turned in on time. And, And so sometimes discipline feels like a bad word. And I think that we see how it got that when my child misbehaves, I discipline her. But the purpose of discipline is to, is, is to train her. When my child misbehaves, my goal is so that she doesn't do it again, so that she's a better, more productive. You know, that she, I, my goal, I don't want her to live with me forever, right? I want her to, to finish school, uh, find a, a, a job that she enjoys, have her own place to live. Uh, I want her to be a competent adult. And my discipline is for the purpose of training her to be the person she should be, and God does the same with us. Those I love, I discipline, he says. So the point is, if you do it right, if you're doing the Christian faith right, you will suffer. Now, Peter qualifies this, not for doing, again, not for doing wrong. If I lose my temper with my wife one time too many, and she leaves me because I am a, a, a raging uh, uh, uncontrolled, abusive husband. Um, that's, that's not what we're talking about. That, that is not suffering for righteousness. In fact, just the opposite. I would argue that most of the things that go wrong in my life are my fault because I did them to myself. Most things that go wrong in my life are my fault. Uh, but suffering will come to the Christian for being a Christian And Peter says, in crazy language, this is God's reward for us. This is how he trains us and builds us up. Muscles build up when we tear them down. That's how muscles work. Weightlifting, um, push-ups, sit-ups, any of those things. When, When we do that kind of thing, we're tearing down the old muscles, which is a little painful, so that we can build up better muscles. And it's the same spiritually. That's how we operate. When we are torn down, what a dangerous thing to pray for that is. When we are torn down, God builds us up that much stronger. Suffering builds up our faith. If everything always goes swimmingly through life, your faith will never be tested and it will probably be very weak faith that will not stand up the first moment that life gets tough. It's the tough times that build us up. The prayer is, God, break me, and he will. God, break me and grow me. And I know that it will be painful as it happens, but my end goal is to be stronger in my faith. Crazy though this is, we rejoice in suffering as it draws us closer to him. I cannot help but think of of Acts chapter 5, verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day and day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. What crazy apostles. Oh, we're we're so grateful that we get to suffer on the name of Christ. Thank you, God, for trusting us this much. But that's the Christian faith. Righteousness matters. It's not just for saints. It is. We're all called to be saints. It's not just for people that we think are unattainable in their, in their levels of, of, of their faith. 
it is, it is attainable. It's for us. Uh, but it is hard work, and that's okay. It's supposed to be. That's what trains us up in our righteousness. So, back in 1 Peter chapter 4, I said we'd get back to verse 7. Verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. We can just stop right there. Be self-controlled so that you can pray. We have to be deliberate even in just prayer. The end of all things is near, Peter says, 2,000 years later. Pretty sure we're nearer. So be of the right mind to pray. With everything that this world throws at us, our best weapon is that God is on our side and that we can go to him whenever we want to. Communication is essential for all relationships, and that certainly includes with God our Father. Be clear-minded, because the Spirit may be willing, but, but our, our fleshy selves, our brain that moves us around, is weak. It is the nature of our physical bodies to lead us into sin. We think with I mean, our brains are still part of that flesh. We think with our physical bodies. And when we think with our bodies, we will be disposed, predisposed towards sin. The world thinks with the flesh we can't afford to. Instead, we use our, our, our minds. And by minds, I don't mean just, the, the, again, the, the, the flesh. We are so different than everything else in the world. We are so different than the animal kingdom. We can reason. Um, we, we, can, we have rational thought. More than that, Christ redeems us and redeems our minds. We can be self-controlled. We can be deliberate. And when we fail to exercise that self-control, we make room for sin. And where there is sin, Peter says, our communication with God is hampered. James chapter 5, verse 16 James says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I want to be that righteous man. I want my prayers to be powerful and effective. Righteousness matters. When we don't live clear-minded and self-controlled, is it any wonder that our prayer life is affected? Prayer matters. And it's not about flowery speech. I always hear, well, I can't pray that way. If you can talk, you can pray. It's private. It's between you and God. God doesn't speak in King James English only. You can talk to him the way that you talk to anybody else. Do it privately. Keep it to yourselves. You can um and ah as much as you want. I generally pray out loud because if I try to pray quietly in my head, I get distracted and I start thinking about other things. I like to pray when I'm driving. That's my, that's my best time. So if you see me going down the road and my lips are moving, 50-50 I'm singing to a song. The other 50% of the time I'm probably praying, uh, and that's okay. That's, that's the way that I pray. And, 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 and I don't do the these and the thous. Prayer is important. It matters. It's just communicating with God. And it's important that we do it, and there's no, there's no wrong. I, I can't think of a wrong way. I guess the only wrong way would be to selfishly say, God, give me this, give me this. And for your early prayers, that's okay too. God, God cares. He, he, he knows what you want. I mean, don't get mad if you don't get everything. 
But the more we pray, the more we start to realize that it's not just about us. But that takes time. I don't know, as long as we're talking with God, I'm not convinced that there's a wrong way to pray. I think the more we talk, because he knows what we're thinking, right? The more that we talk with God, the more that he will change us. So then back in, in, back in 1 Peter chapter 4 again, we read verse 7, what, verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And again, there's just a lot there. We have to love. Love matters. We have to be deliberate in our love. But I, I think everybody, I like board games. I have a collection of them in my office. I keep them in my office because I keep hoping that the kids will swing by and say, Jason, let's play a board game. Hasn't happened as much as I've wanted. Adults, we, we, uh, you, you're, you, I'll play board games with you guys too, not just the kids. In high school, my friends and I, do you remember Risk, the board game Risk, where you try to take over the world with a my, my parents had a first edition Risk board. Now, the box is, is gone. I've still got the board and the wooden pieces, and my friends and I would get together to play Risk, and that is a long game. If you play per the original rules, as we did, that might take a week. We, we would get together, we'd set up the board, and my parents had a camper for a while, set up the board in the camper in the garage, and we'd play through the course of a week. Risk hasn't been selling well lately because it's a really long board game. And so Milton Bradley or whoever owns the game made a shorter version, which offends me to my soul, and in, that, that the game can be played in five turns. It's still not selling because we live in a day when people want instant gratification in computer games and video games, and board games aren't doing as well as they used to do. Um, and I think the reason part of this offense, I don't like computer games. I like people. Board games are for me it, an excuse to hang around with people, and I think it's fun to be with people, and I'm missing that on a computer game uh, and a video game. And I, and I, don't, and I don't play those things. Uh, our world is insular. It doesn't want to hang. People don't want to be with other people. People, people went into the pandemic and were so thrilled that they got to stay home and not see people face to face, and they're fighting to not go back to that life of interacting with people. And we're seeing companies struggling with the fact that workers are just refusing to go back to the office, and it's not about health for for most of them. They just like working from home and not having to deal with with people. In tweets and texts and emails and everything else, in all of the, we all miscommunicate in in in, in texting or tweeting or, or or Facebook or because we don't have that human interaction. It's not effective communication. I say this as a guy with two degrees in linguistics. I went uh, when I was at the University of North Dakota. I had a professor. Uh, her name was Laura. I don't even remember what her last name was because she just said call her Laura, which is also only a couple of years older than the rest of us. And her focus, ready for this, for linguistics, she wrote her, her, her Ph.D. on eye contact while talking because it's essential and because you lose communication. And she gave a great example. She brought in a cassette tape where she had, back in the days of cassette tapes, when she had recorded a conversation between some people and first we read the transcript, and it made no sense whatsoever. And then we listened to it, and it made a lot more sense. Because writing between people, like texting and stuff, doesn't make... 
it's amazing what intonation does. It's amazing what hearing people does. It improves communication drastically. So then we listened to it, and it made a lot more sense. But then she and a few professors acted out the scene where they were looking, and it made complete sense. People matter. Communication is all about people. We have a problem. It's called cocooning. And, and, and we, we read that people cocoon themselves in their homes. They're less social than we used to be as a society. Less people inviting people over to their houses. Now, I don't, texting, I'm not, I'm not anti-texting, okay? I'm not. I don't like email at all. Please, if you can text me rather than email me, just text me, please, okay? I'll, I'm not good about checking email. I don't like it. Um, but I'm not, it's not like I'm against it. But here's my problem. We live in an insular culture, and how can you love when we're so insular? When we, when we block people out, how can we show Christ-like love? Love must be our goal. Our very first commitment, Jesus says, love the Lord your God. Our second, love other people. Jesus says these are the two most important commands for the Christian. How can we do that when we shut everybody out? God's love covers our sins. And Peter says that our love for others uh, is how they will know us. So let me show you, tell you where I see lack of love today. And it's not on Facebook. Uh, it, it's more, what are people doing to make their world a better place? We can even take out the church. We just talk about soup kitchens and think, are people serving their community the way that we used to as a culture? And I, don't, I think that the answer is no, that we're not. In fact, that's what I see. It's hard to get volunteers. It's hard in the church to get volunteers. By the way, we have a, a sign-up sheet for uh, com- communion preparation. See one of the elders or, or deacons about that. We need people to, make, uh, to prepare communion in the church. We have a sign-up sheet for cooking for our Wednesday night kids' own worship program. And churches are, are around the country discovering that it's hard to get people to just volunteer and do simple things at the church. Uh, people see themselves as an audience. We're just here to watch as opposed to participants. But nowhere does the Bible call us to be an audience for the bride of Christ. We're to be the bride of Christ. Um, and, and people resent if you ask them to serve. It, it is as if, you know, the church is amazing. It is as if you were given a gift card to pick, the, pick your favorite restaurant in town. You were given a gift card to your favorite place in town to eat, and you get upset that you have to drive there. <laughs> but there are people out there that are like that, right? And we have the bride of Christ is amazing. And we get to be a part of it forever. And through the church, God offers salvation to the world. And we resent that we might have to sweep the floor or prepare food for a potluck or for a funeral dinner. We get upset that the church might expect us to do anything other than show up. The church is a gift, and it's in the little things that show how we interact with people. Uh, I had a friend of mine, his wife cheated on him, and, and I don't want to say they worked through things, and I don't want to say that they didn't. They, they didn't divorce, and for the next two years, uh, he just kept she lived in the doghouse, and he just kept bringing it up and kept, kept scolding her for it. And I said, 
dude, at some point, you're going to have to let that go and forgive her. And his response was, I'll let her live with me. That's, that's all she deserves. What a terrible way to live. Forgive her, forgive her, get a divorce at that point. But, but, but to choose to live in resentment and in a lack of forgiveness is just an ugly way to live. And our world thinks that that's okay. But without forgiveness, there's no room for love. Without love, there's no room, there's no room to have a relationship with God. We have been forgiven. Can we not in turn forgive others, as Jesus says, as we have been forgiven? Think of, therefore, therefore, think of who you're mad at. That, is that what's keeping you from drawing closer to God? That lack of love, that lack of forgiveness. Until we learn to let go of hatred and turn towards love, how can we feel God's love? We're hampered. And to be clear, love isn't a feeling. Well, I'm still angry with that person. It doesn't matter. Love is not a feeling. Love is an action. You can be nice to someone that you're angry at. You can, you can be loving to someone that you don't like. Because love is not in... It's not like, well, I like somebody and then I love somebody, and that's graduating from like to love. Love is an action. It's not a feeling. Some days love takes effort. Some days it takes a lot of effort. It's not easy. But Christians are called to be people of love, not the way the world defines it. All right. Let's finish up this chapter. Verse 9. First Peter chapter 4, verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. We're all ministers. We have to be deliberate in our ministry. Our purpose is not to get rich. It's not to get comfortable. It's not to collect toys, comics, guns, whatever, shoes, whatever our collections are. Our purpose is ministry. Some are called to the ministry of evangelism. Some are called to teaching. Some are called to preaching or music or encouragement or hospitality. The point is, isn't your happiness, the point isn't your comfort zone, the point is your ministry. We are to minister to one another, to the world outside these four walls. That's what the point of the church is. Uh, encouraging, serving, hospitality speaking, any of these ministries. So when people see us, do they feel welcome? Do they feel that we love them? Uh, and again, you don't have to invite people into your house to be, you know, Let's go out to eat, something like that, perhaps. Do they feel that you're there for them, that, you're not, that they're not an imposition on you? Do they feel Christ's love through us? In speaking, are our words Christ-like, building people up? Yeah, the, the, the Greek word for language, the Greek word for tongue is also the word for language. There have been some communication problems with the Bible and translation problems when I think sometimes the word language gets translated tongues and confuses us. What I love is that in Coptic language, which I spent a lot of my master's degree studying, the word for tongue is the word for sword. How neat is that? And, and when you take that into account that your word for tongue is your word for sword, now we get the idea that words hurt and that a bad word can ruin somebody's day, can be taken wrong. 
uh, it cuts. Christians can cut deeply. Think about James chapter 3, verse 9. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Our tongue can condemn us. Christians can cut very deeply with words. We are called to speak every word as if it was Jesus speaking. Not, not even just speaking to Jesus. That's a good beginning. But now as if Jesus is speaking through us. Serve every person as if Jesus was serving them. And then I wonder if we would serve others differently. If eternity matters, ministry matters. Our lives are short. We don't have a lot of time. Let's take advantage of it. Let's make sure that we meet the needs of the world around us the way that God wants to meet needs through us. Our hymn of invitation today is hymn number 443. Peter says, I want to look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. I just want to read a couple verses again. We read these, but I just want to... Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? God's judgment is on us and on us first. It's easy to be distracted. It's easy as Christians. Satan, Satan doesn't need to distract the rest of the world or, or, or sidetrack them. They're not saved. Satan wants to see us distracted. He wants to see us leave the faith. God's judgment refines us. It gets out the dross. It's difficult, but the difficult, narrow, small way is the best way. Uh, it's worth it. We are called to take the difficult way uh, of in, in being Christ-like. I encourage you, encourage myself, to take the difficult path and to be Christ-like. If you haven't made a decision to accept Christ as Savior, I'd like to talk with you. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at our website, firstchurchofchristelkins.com, where you can also find out more. Have a nice week.